race talk. Unknowingly, people can easily exercise racial colorblindness through their race talk. I define race talk as any discussion about race and its impact on social life. Talking about race can be cathartic for some, but taboo for others. It can be cathartic because it allows people to vent about their struggles, frustrations, and uncertainties regarding their racial identity, negative racialized experiences, and mainstream racist ideologies. Talking about race can also be taboo because some people perceive it to be ambiguous, uncomfortable, or simply unnecessary. Race-related matters may be completely irrelevant to some people's daily lives because they do not have to think about race. If an individual rarely engages in racial discourse, then race talk remains foreign territory. Inadequate vocabulary and faulty conceptual understanding forebode clumsy conversation about race. Misinformed race talk often repeats racial stereotypes, reinforces skewed racialized analytical thinking, and increases resistance to addressing racial issues embedded in society. Miller, Donner, and Frazier explored how people negotiated difficult conversations between different social identities. Across social identities and environments, there are those with more privilege and those with less privilege. Failure to have meaningful conversations between privileged and underprivileged people likely renders unequal advantages invisible for those with more privilege. Upon reflecting on their advantages, privileged people may experience certain internal conflicts. Primarily, they may believe that they rightfully earn their social status. Alternatively, they may realize that they have benefited from advantages of birth into an inequitable social hierarchy. Although Miller, Donner, and Frazier did not concentrate specifically on race, their discussion of general privilege awareness applies to my work on race talk and race consciousness. For white people specifically, avoiding race talk maintains privileges linked to whiteness. Avoiding race talk and discrediting how race influences society veils the institutional structures that reproduce racial inequality. Racial colorblindness allows white people to categorize themselves as racially tolerant and politically progressive without having to acknowledge social, economic, and political arrangements that disproportionately benefit white people. Anyone, regardless of race, can view their social world through a colorblind lens. Those who cling to colorblind perspectives likely use coded language when discussing race-related matters. Bonilla Silva researched how white people navigated racial conversations emotionally and linguistically. Across 41 interviews with college students and 83 interviews with Detroit area residents, the study highlighted stylistic components of colorblind rhetoric. Major components of colorblind rhetoric included white people eschewing direct racial language while expressing racial views, deflecting blame from oneself, use of diminutives, and linguistic incoherence. Some interviewees mentioned listening to or telling racist jokes in conversations with their peers, which shows that although racial slurs are less acceptable in public discussion, they still appear in private discussion. College-aged interviewees tended to blame Black people for self-segregation. It seemed rational that Black people would rather interact with other Black people exclusively, which excused the interviewees of any personal responsibility in maintaining racial segregation. Maxwell and Chesler investigated how white college students managed comfort and conflict in group dialogues about race. 
the racially homogenous groups were called the White Racial Identity Dialogues, or WRID, and the heterogeneous groups were called Race and Ethnicity Dialogues, or RE. WRID groups comprised only white students, and the RE groups consisted of Black, Asian, and white students. The researchers assessed that WRID students learned more about whiteness as a social construct. The white RE students digested more about how they may be complicit in racist societal dynamics and how race affected their peers of color. Comfort as a condition for full participation exemplified white privilege in racial conversations for WRID students, but such privilege was not deliberately addressed for the WRID group. In a homogeneously white setting, WRID students benefited from low-risk, low-dissonance race talk. For example, WRID students avoided risk of offending a person of color, appearing to be racist, or displaying ignorance about race. While avoiding risk seemed more comfortable, conflict and cognitive dissonance may have pressed WRID students to grasp their direct role in racialized social processes in their own lives. According to the African literature, daily conversations, or lack thereof, about race mold our social outlook. An individual who rarely or never discusses race may deem race taboo or insignificant in their own lives. People who use demeaning or negatively coded language when discussing race may hold inaccurate beliefs about people from different racial backgrounds. Unfortunately, we cannot always clearly detect racist ideologies within conversation, which means we are all susceptible to witnessing or reproducing them unknowingly. Oral History Narratives Through a Racial Lens Through interviews, researchers can evaluate emotional insights about historical moments from the interviewee's vantage point. Bendis assessed how Northerners and Southerners in the U.S. individually and collectively told their life narratives regarding race in the 1950s and 1960s. Storytelling revealed how personal accounts and broader historical contexts complement each other. The interviews were cathartic for Black participants, but discomforting for white participants. White interviewees generally recognized how white supremacy functioned in society and understood that racism was wrong, but neglected individual responsibility in perpetuating white dominance. White interviewees tended to say, that's the way things were, or everyone got along and stayed in their place, which suggested a recall frame that lightly recognized racism's role in society rather than bluntly stating its impact. For most of the black and white interviewees, remembering past race-related encounters was unsettling. Yet, the roots of discomfort were markedly different across race. Black interviewees addressed the negative influences of racism on their lives, while white interviewees struggled with acknowledging their own potential role in reproducing inequality. Horsford solely documented black interviewees' feelings about school desegregation. The researcher reported on interviews with eight black school superintendents who were willing to discuss their personal experiences from attending segregated schools between primary and high school. Counter storytelling anchored Horsford's findings. Counter storytelling challenges widespread perceptions, myths, or skewed descriptions 
of a given event or idea. Participants' counter-stories of racial integration starkly opposed the following notions. One, racially mixed schools were inherently better than all black schools. Two, racially mixed schools meant equal education opportunities for all students. Three, legal desegregation guaranteed integration. Participants' accounts pointed to the disproportionately adverse individual and systemic effects of racial integration on black students and faculty members. Patterson, Mickelson, Hester, and Weirich studied oral histories of 55 alumni from an all-black school in Kansas. The interviewees' collective accounts included school experiences from the 1920s through 1958. The project centralized student-teacher relationships, specifically analyzing black female teachers' roles as caregivers and protectors for their black students within and beyond the formal school setting. The teachers carefully and diligently prepared their students for transitions into the newly desegregated white schools and a white dominated society. Using interviews, news editorials, and public statements from school board members and community leaders, McClellan analyzed local resistance to the racial integration of schools in Northeastern Tennessee. Did public unrest stem from the bigotry of local white residents or were outside agitators, for example, news and media outlets to blame for disturbing the peace in Clinton, Tennessee? In one of the phone interviews from 1993, McClellan considered the sources of discord with the white alumnus of Clinton High School. Regarding the rioting in response to desegregation, the alumnus emphatically declared it was not a racial issue. It was not an issue of segregation or desegregation. Clinton always had been a perfectly harmonious law-abiding community. The problem was with outsiders who couldn't leave us alone. The project concluded that although racial division precipitated conflict between black and white people in Clinton, the federal government's mandate to desegregate schools threatened the comfort of acceptable social interactions that racial segregation afforded. An interview with Minnie Jean Brown Tricky offered direct insights into the struggles of integration as a black student and its long-term effects on her personal life into adulthood. In 1957, she was one of the nine black students who first integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. She elucidated how she navigated the historical depictions of her school days, her immediate role in integration, and her identity beyond high school. Throughout the interview, Brown Tricky detailed specific battles at school that consumed her adolescence and alluded to the routine race-related issues that would never appear in U.S. history books. Just as she uncovered nuances of her lived experiences during integration, my project will do the same by comparing oral history narratives of schooling experiences during racial integration between white and black people. Above, I presented extant literature about conceptualizations of race in the U.S., race talk, and using oral history narratives to examine how people perceive race. Our racialized social constructions precede race talk, and race talk reveals how we perceive race operating in our lives. Investigating discussions about the racial integration of schools may offer insights about how interviewees conceptualize race.
Through the remainder of the paper, I will explain connections between my project and existing race research about racial colorblindness, methods, data, findings, and implications.